I'm not sure if this is a timer or a second mic, but uh, we're set to go either way. Margaret and I had a wonderful Christmas. Hope you did too. See, David and Giselle are still here, so I'm assuming there's no grandchild yet, right? We did actually have a baby last week, one of the ESL women. Uh, Joy had a baby. Girl, boy, I'm not sure. Boy? Great. So we're growing, and uh, and that's a good thing. It's New Year's, and anybody make a resolution? I actually go to sleep on New Year's. You know, I tried to watch some of the stuff. I thought, like... Am I really going to wait up to midnight to watch some dumb ball drop? That's not going to change my life. I mean, I'm going to still have the same debt the next morning that I had the night before. Nothing that I know of in my life has ever changed because that ball dropped. And I lived and worked in New York long enough to know I don't want to be in a million people in Times Square. Okay, It's not all that much fun to be crushed. Maybe it is for some people, but I fought my way through the subways in New York for enough years, and if that wasn't enough, Moscow was even more. <clears throat> you know, I mean, just fight your way on and off. Happy to sit at home alone in the living room and just think and read. Last evening, actually, as I was kind of prepping, you know, hockey players listen to all this rock music and everything to kind of get ready to go in a game. You watch Team Canada, they're all listening to in their headsets and whatever, getting ready to put on the skates and get the sticks going and whatever and get all out. I was listening last evening to something like, We Shall Behold Him, or I've Just Met Jesus. It's kind of warming up for the game. To get our mind in the right place. And one of the things I want to do this new year is... I want Christ to be more preeminent in my life. I hope you do too. And I hope that we as a church really want Christ to be more first and that we want to reach this community and we want to do significant things that have kingdom impact. And one of the verses I was thinking about on the way in this morning is about treasures in heaven. Lay for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither wrath, you know, moth nor rust can corrupt, where thieves break through and steal. Let's do kingdom stuff. I just want to encourage you to be thinking that way all year. Kingdom stuff, kingdom stuff, kingdom stuff. What am I doing for the kingdom? Well, having said that, I want to start a sermon series this morning that's going to take us through uh, the month of January. As it takes us through the month of January, I have to tell you how this sermon series came about. I was teaching one of our ESL Bible studies, the Monday morning Bible study, and we were studying Genesis chapter 3. Now, Genesis chapter 3 has got to be one of the most important chapters in the entire Bible. This is where everything goes from good to bad, goes south. And as we were studying that, we came across that verse that deals with the husband-wife relationship. You know, the one that says that the wife's desire will be for her husband and he will rule over her. Now, you have to put this in context. I don't mean the biblical context. I mean, like, this Bible study is predominantly feminine. You're getting a picture, right? You're with me. And I'm talking about the husband's going to rule over you. Some of them are looking at me like, want to bet? Some of them, some of them are just the milder sort, and they're thinking like, maybe. 
And some of them just kind of push back, you know what I mean? And then one of the women asked this question. Why can't we reverse the curse? I thought, now that's a good question, okay? Actually, it's a far better question. Initially, we thought it was just funny. And I began thinking about, you know what? This is the question that God asks. How do we reverse this curse? It's not just the question God asks. It's the question that the entire Bible addresses. How do we reverse the curse? We start in Genesis and we end in the latter part of Revelation. And it's all about what the curse did and how we're going to get rid of that thing. Now, you might be here this morning, you're not familiar with the Bible, you don't know anything about Genesis 3, uh, you don't know anything about human relationships, you don't know anything about cursing. But like these women, you surely understand things could be better in the world. I don't know about you, I'm almost depressed when I look at the news to read it or, or listen to it. I mean, it's another rape, another murder, another terrorist attack. Another dog got hurt somewhere. Uh, it's pet news now too, right? I mean, it's just a litany of kidnappings. On and on the story goes of the world in which we live is a fairly miserable world. And, and I sometimes think that Adrian Monk, you know, Adrian Monk, the obsessive compulsive detective, he got it right when he said, it's a jungle out there. Because it is a jungle out there. What's amazing to me is that in the midst of this jungle, in the midst of all of this adversity, in the midst of all of this evil, we believe things could be better. And we just didn't start believing that the last century or the century before. If we go back to 350 B.C., we we meet a man by the name of Plato, probably the most famous of the ancient Greek philosophers. And Plato had a great idea. It's called the Republic. Plato's idea was for society that if you take the best men and the best women and you begin a breeding program with these, you will end up with the best children. And if you take these best children away from their parents as soon as possible and have them trained by the state, they will become children of the state. They will always be loyal to the state. And then out of this select little group of kids you'll form some kind of an oligarchy that will rule and bring about the perfect state anywhere. 350 B.C. Sounds like present-day Ontario. The Chinese have their own version of this kind of story. It's called The Peach Blossom Spring by Tao Yangming. It's about a fisherman. Starts going down the river, ends up in some lagoon, finds himself in some hidden place. All of the streets are lined with peach blossom petals. Couldn't be any better. The people are great. He decides after seven days that he has to go back home and tell the world about his journey. But when he goes home and tells people, nobody's going to make the journey to that land. Skip ahead about a thousand years in your thinking. Some of us who went through school and actually had to take English literature might remember beating our way through Sir Thomas More's utopia. If you didn't have to do it, count your blessings. 
You probably got the easier version. Somebody let you off with Gulliver's Travels or Robinson Crusoe. That was kind of the, uh, you could do that in classic comics. That was easier to get through. Always talking about this new world that's coming. And it's not just them. Thoreau's writing about Walden. Then you have H.G. Wells speaking about men who are gods. And then you have Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. You get the point. People have long sought and desired for this incredible place where you actually could be and live where it would be really good. It's been tried a lot in history. Are you aware of the fact this morning that three of the first U.S. colonies were dedicated to this idea to establish a utopia? The state of Georgia, state of Pennsylvania, the Carolinas, all dedicated to the ideal that we can build a perfect place for men to be. We're going to bring the vision into reality. And as much as you and I didn't go up under this philosophy, Marx and Lenin talked about a classless society, the great place where everybody would share everything equally and ultimately would be equal, controlled at least one-third of the population of the world for a hundred years. We want that dream. Even today, as you and I live here in Canada, the, the creeping welfare state, if you will, is coming in. I, I kind of like where... Big government is like mommy who kisses all of your boo-boos. It makes everything better. We take care of you from cradle to grave. You see, we want that. But here's the thing I want you to think about this morning, that in 2,500 years of thinking about this, nobody has ever been able to make it happen on a sustained basis. You can talk about the Quakers, they got us started. You can talk about the Shakers, they died out for obvious reasons. You can talk about what Pennsylvania was, then you can look at what Pennsylvania is. You can look all over the world, and and we can look at the history of these communist dictatorships as one by one by one. They've crumbled or morphed into something different. The idea hasn't worked, and still the idea persists. We're still looking for this incredible place. This incredible place where men and women will actually live in a a civil, and I don't mean just a governmental, I mean a society where people are civil and loving and caring and good and not selfish and not hostile. We're still looking for it. Of course, the existentialists gave up. They tell us that life is absurd Existence on a good day is nasty, or, as John Paul Sartre puts it, hell is other people. Wow. There's not a lot of hope in that message, is there? One person has said, you know what? The death of hope leads to the hope for death. Is there anything truer in our world today than this? Our young people, this great Western world society, and our young people are choosing to kill themselves at alarming rates. They don't want it. And it's not just them. It's all of this debate and discussion now about assisted suicide. 
a lot of people wanting to check out on this brave new world, this great society that we've created. And yet the funny thing is, the hope still goes on. This, this hope just doesn't go away. And you have to ask yourself why. Why, given, given the history of failure, given, if you will, the snide comments of the existentialists and other philosophers, why on earth does this vision still persist? I want us to ask some questions this morning. Suppose that what we're talking about isn't a dream. Eh? Think of it this way. What if, what if the dream was not a fiction about the future, but was a memory about the past? Or what if the dream was not about where we're going, but where we came from? Or what if the dream is, is not a fiction at all? but based on fact. And what if the dream is not about what could be, but about what was? And what if the dream was not a dream at all, but much, much more? What if Solomon got it right? And eternity is burned into our hearts. Then all of a sudden you see this dream and fundamental foundational Christian truth come right together. And that's why you and I as believers need to understand the creation story is so important. We tended sometimes to say, you know what, forget the creation story. It is fraught with scientific difficulties, blah, 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 blah. Don't give up the creation account. Don't do that. I want to tell you why. Now, once I start talking about the creation account, somebody's going to say to me, but Lou, what about, how many hours do you think were in those days? And where do you think dinosaurs lived? How big was the gap between verse 1 and 2? Get a life. The creation account answers one question that you need to get clear in your mind. And it's not about dinosaurs and all that kind of stuff. The creation account, whatever else the creation account teaches, it teaches one thing very clearly. It's made up of three parts, but it teaches one thing very clearly. It teaches, one, you are not the product of causality. That's what it teaches. If you listen to some people, like Dawkins and others, they're going to talk to you about the universe. It is step by step, A causing B, B causing C, C causing D, and on and on and on it goes. And finally, after enough A, B, Cs, and Ds, and, and millions of years, we get to you, and here you are. Actually, you may not even really want to be here this morning. Well, you know what? What you want to do this morning is determine too, so it doesn't make any difference. You couldn't do any different if you wanted to, because you couldn't want to. That's where determinism takes you. We're not the product of cause and effect. There's a second thing, too. You get this idea sometimes that the universe was just kind of buzzing along, right? Just kind of doing its own thing, minding its own business, and on one day it has a burp or something like that. Voila! Human beings show up. 
some kind of cosmic accident. Genesis says that isn't true either. What Genesis teaches clearly in the creation account is that human beings are here by choice. Obviously not by their choice, because they weren't there to choose to be here. So we have to ask ourselves, as we go back to Genesis, who actually, you know, when we come to the, the creation account, is going to focus on two things. Who actually is the one who makes the choice? And then secondly, we have to ask ourselves the question, what choice does he make? So who made the choice? Well, clearly, God makes this choice. In the beginning, Genesis 1 says, right? God creates the heavens and the earth. God makes the choice. What we don't often recognize is that when we're studying the book of Genesis, particularly chapters 1 and 2, we learn out a tremendous number of things about God that are really important to our understanding of who he is and how we relate to him. This God, the Genesis account, is the God who pre-exists. He is, as some might call him in philosophy class somewhere, the prime mover, unmoved. He's the first cause. He is, if you go from the other direction, the stopping point of an infinite regress. Let's just get down to it. He exists before anything else. I like the way John puts it in John chapter 1 in the parallel creation account. Whenever the beginning was, because that's the implication of the text, God already was. Whenever the beginning was, God already was. He is the pre-existent one. He's not just pre-existent, he's powerful. It's amazing, you know, when you read Genesis chapter 1 and you start interacting with the text. Can you imagine any scientist writing this text? I don't know. I don't think so. But you listen. And Moses says, time after time, and God said, let there be. And there was. I mean, that's incredible. The power of this God who merely speaks and what he wills comes into being. Can you imagine that? It's a dinosaur. Boom! There's a dinosaur. It's kind of like the genie in the bottle deal, only a bigger, bigger, bigger version. Incredibly powerful. And if you follow the creation story, you just read, I hope you got Genesis 1 and 2 in front of you in your Bible. It'd be really helpful. You begin reading Genesis 1, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was without form, and it was empty. And now you all of a sudden you understand, it's without form, it's empty, what's God going to do? He's going to shape it. That's what he does on day 1, 2, and 3. And then day 4, 5, and 6. He fills it. He moves from the simple to the complex. He's intelligent. He's a designer. There, I use the word intelligent design. 
But he's more than that. This is a God who is purposeful. You come over to verse 26 and and you hear God saying, chapter 1, verse 26, you hear God saying, let us make man in our image. He's got purpose. And then more than that, once God has made man, something very, very interesting happens in the text. God is living with a human being, interacting with a human being. He is a personal, relational God. Now you may ask, who cares? You should care. Okay? Because right in this chapter is the difference between the God that you and I believe in and the God of Islam. It's the difference between the, the God of Hinduism and the God of Christianity, the difference between the God of Taoism and the God of Christianity. This is fundamental, foundational truth. You cannot miss these things. They are extremely important. They may sound like trivia. They're the furthest thing in the world from trivia. The text continues, and in chapter 2, we find out something else about God. We find that he rests That always seems to be a bizarre thing to me. How could God possibly get tired? He's got all of the energy, right? I mean, it's kind of a non sequitur, isn't it? God running out of energy? Setting the example for Sabbath rest, for time for rest. So that we're going to know about that. And this God, too is very concerned about things being just so. He wants things to be good. And so as you're reading your way through the Genesis account, no less than six times you get to see God evaluating what he's done. And each time he makes an evaluation, he says what? And it was good. Six times. You think Moses wants you to know that? I think so. Six times, you should get the point by that point, right? Six times. So we know who makes the choice. What does he choose? He chooses to make everything, right? He chooses to create. And here's the amazing thing to me about Genesis 1. It says a whole lot about everything, and it doesn't say very much about anything. Right? I mean, you've got... All of these accounts, you mean the boom, 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 makes this, 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 and, and whatever. But at the end of the day, you don't know very much about what he made, except for two things. And the first of those things is the human being. What choice does God make? One, he chooses, he chooses to create human beings. The fact that Moses wants you to understand this is clearly spelled out in the Genesis text. Take a look at it. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created. For the next 20 verses, Moses doesn't use this word again. Actually, the next 19 verses. Then, in verse 21... He uses the word create again. God created the big sea creatures. 
it is amazing to me how sparingly Moses and God used the word creation in the creation text because when you come to verse 27, it's like there's an explosion. What I mean by an explosion is in one verse, a word that he's used two times in 26 verses, he now uses three times in one verse. And with regard to one thing, he created them, male and female, he created them, created them, created them, created them. Do you think he wants you to know created? I think so. And not just created. Because in tandem with this, jointly with this in the text, verses 26 and 27, created in God's image. Three times. In God's image, in God's image, in God's image. So you ask yourself then, what does that mean? Oh, back when I was young and really, really, really interested in theology, and, and you liked using Latin words, you want to talk about the Imago Dei. It's the image of God to normal people, but when you're young and trying to act like you're smart, using Latin is a good trick. Okay. And so you start talking about, so good, now you know two Latin words, what do they in fact mean? And so you kind of go through all the emotion, will, intellect, eternality, spirituality. Yeah, I guess that works. I don't know that that's what Moses really was driving at in the text. I, I think here's what he's driving at. Of all of the things in creation, of all of the things that God made, nothing bears a closer resemblance to him than human beings. And God wants to punctuate that point. And if you remember, at most of the creation stages, starting at about day three, God says, and it was good, 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 and the first half of the day, six, and it was good. And then the human being is created. And God changes that phrase by one word. And it was very good. And all of a sudden, what you have now is a picture that what God does when he creates the human being is that he creates, if you will, the best of the best. Maybe you like the way Jack Nicholson would put it better. It's as good as it gets. As good as it gets physically, as good as it gets psychologically, as good as it gets spiritually. It's as as good as it gets. Okay. But then we turn to the second focus in the creation account, and it comes up in chapter 2. And that focus has to do with the garden, as you and I know it. Okay. We know a lot of things about the garden. We know that there are four rivers that are associated with this garden, two of them which we still know about today, the Tigris and the Euphrates. 
We know that this garden has its own irrigation system. We know that in this garden there are trees that are, that are meant to be put there so that the humans will be able to eat and be nourished and whatever. We know that there is gold, very special kind of gold in this garden. And not just gold, but there are incredible gems. And you get in a picture, you know a lot about the garden. And then, of course, you know about the really, really cool trees that are in the garden like the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. And this place is a very, very, very special place. Of all of the places in the world, this place is special. God gave special attention to this place. It's Eden. Paradise. Utopia. And then you have to note something. If you're reading your Bible this morning, you turn over to chapter 2 and verse 8, and, and listen to what it says. Moses doesn't want you to miss this one either. Then God took the man, notice the word in the text, and put him in a garden. Now, you might have missed that in verse 8, so when you get down to verse 15, the same thing is stated. God took the man and him in a garden. In other words, what Moses is trying to get you to understand is it wasn't that Adam and Eve were walking around, taking a walk one day and found a really, really great spot and said, this is it. He said, God created this place special for them. And so what you have is this incredible picture in the first two chapters of Genesis of the best of the best, the best of all creation, the human being placed by God in the best of all possible worlds. You getting the picture? That's what this creation account is about. And what this creation account then tells us is that burned deep into our memory. Burned deep into our psyche, burned deep into our soul, is a memory of a place that God created for us to be, which is incredibly different from where we're living today. It's not a dream. It's a fundamental reality. And as Adam and Eve are in that place, They're in God's presence. They are in God's image. And they're at rest. And the story isn't over yet. The creation story actually ends with a really, really funny verse. I don't know if Moses ended the story with this because he has a great sense of humor. And the man and the woman were naked and not ashamed. What an interesting verse. I don't really think that Moses is trying to tell us that Adam and Eve had a really good sex life. They may have. I have no idea. Don't care. I do know this. A man is to leave his father, his mother, be joined to his wife, and they too become one flesh, and surely that has sexual overtones. I'm not saying this text doesn't have sexual overtones. I'm simply saying that sexual overtones 
are only part of what the text really implies. They were naked. They were naked in every way that you can imagine. The older scholars used to talk about Adam and Eve innocence. It was the, the time of innocence. Language changes. Innocence isn't really a very common word today and doesn't really speak about what I think this text speaks about. What might we say if we were describing this today is that they were open, they were honest, they were transparent, they were sincere, they had integrity. What you see is what you get. Now, as you start thinking about that, that they were naked and there was no shame, can can you imagine that? Can you imagine living in a world like that? No acting, no half-truths, no positioning, no manipulation, none of the nonsense that goes on that you and I live with every day. No half-truths, no secrets. Can you imagine a world where you're always accepted, always safe, always secure because there's no verbal games or psychological games taking place. Can you imagine? Can you imagine what a marriage would be like if both partners in the marriage totally trusted one another? If there was Absolute honesty, no secrets anywhere. Imagine what it would be like to work in a place like that. You know, where you didn't have to, I love the way they put it in management literature, adjust to the corporate ethos. That means you need to learn how they lie in that culture or something like that or do business. have to come up with a whole new vocabulary as to what this means in this context. Imagine what it would be to work in a business environment where there was honesty and where the boss was as much for you as you were for him and there were no secrets in the corporation and there was this feeling. I mean, that's what we're talking about all the time. That's why in 21st century we're talking about it's a team, a working team. Nobody's the captain. We have leaders now. We don't have captains anymore. We're changing our whole language because this is what we want. Can you imagine? Can you imagine parent-child relationships or child-parent relationships if teens and their parents totally trusted one another? Can you imagine that? And the answer is, you actually should be able to imagine that. Because what I'm talking about here is exactly what God intended. It's exactly what God intended for you. It's exactly what God intended for me. He didn't intend for us to live in situations where we couldn't trust one another, where we didn't feel safe with one another, where we didn't feel secure in our marital relationships, where we didn't feel significant. He didn't create us for that at all. He created us to live in an environment We're in in his image, living in his presence at 
rest and just as safe as can be. You see, it's not a dream. It is not a dream. If we were going into literature this morning, I would take you back to some British poetry. I would take you back to Francis Thompson's Hound of Heaven. I would take you back to George Herbert's The Bully. And I would say that this, what we call a dream, which is actually a memory of what God created for, this is what is pulling us back all the time. Surely there's something better. Surely there's something better. Surely there's something better. We know there's something better. Because eternity is written in our hearts. See, if we're ever going to reverse the curse, we actually have to understand we're living under a curse. We don't live like that today. We want to live the way God wants us to live. But we're not living that way. Why not? Well, there's a condition. I'm not going to talk about the condition this morning. We'll talk about that next Sunday morning. But I want you to leave here today understanding. You talk about wanting the good life. Nobody wants the good life more for you than God. You believe that? Nobody wants the good life more for you than God wants. He created you to live in an incredible life, in an incredible place, at peace, at rest, trusting, caring, safe, secure, sincere, transparent. How good does it get? It's incredibly good. Here's the thing. This is our foundation. It's what we're intended for. We look back at it, we remember it, we say we want it. There's good news. We actually are going to have it. If actually going to have this if because our foundation this foundational truth about how God created us to be is also not just the foundational truth it's the Christian hope it's where we're headed it's where we came from it's where we're headed and if you like the analogy Read some of the book of Ezekiel. Because they're always going back to Eden. And that's what I want to tell you. Is that as God reverses the curse, we started in Eden, we're going back home. Let's pray together. Father, we just thank you today. Now, this isn't a dream that some human being made up. It's a reality. 
You created the human being best of the best. You put him in this incredible environment, the best of all possible worlds. You wanted him to live at rest and in openness and honesty and transparency, security, and all of those other incredible things. Lord, we're a long way from there, some of us. And like little children we call out this morning, we say, help us to get back home. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.